Let let us pray as we begin this this evening. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, for the the great gift that you've given us in allowing us to come tonight to to hear your word as a means of grace. Lord, let it be that in our lives, in our families, and let that transfer over both to our churches and to the society at large. God, we pray that you would graciously give us ears to hear, that you would, Father, graciously help us to obey. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase, become less that you and you alone can become more. Have your way, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Good evening. Thank you for joining us on our midweek worship time of of, uh, church. (laughs) The elders uh, spoke a few weeks back to discuss where should we go next after our series on congregationalism. And we do pray that you were blessed by that series of congregationalism, pray that it it was edifying for you. The next step we felt was was pretty obvious. We would begin to see whether or not the church understood the series on congregationalism when we as a local body began to take responsibility for one another. So we were praying that we would begin to see fruit from the congregational series When we saw each other, when we saw one another begin to disciple one another, taking responsibility for one another by discipling one another. Therefore, we concluded that the next logical step to take would be a series on discipleship. That would be the the best logical choice for us. But then I've kind of I have to thank the elders as well, because I did interject myself. That rather than jumping straight to discipleship of one another, we thought it would be, I thought it would be, and we agreed, irresponsible for us to leapfrog discipling one another and leapfrog discipling our own families. Or, to say it another way, to skip the responsibility of discipling our families, to ignore the responsibility of discipling our families and jump straight to discipling one another. Therefore, for this month of January, we will spend five weeks, five Wednesdays, speaking about family discipleship. Tonight, we will address the issue of man's leadership, a man's leadership in his home. Or more specifically, you'll hear me say this over and over again tonight, male headship. You'll hear me say over and over again, male headship. There are three books that I've used for this series. One of them is by John MacArthur, Being a Dad Who Leads. Another one by Joel Beakey called Family Worship. These will be up here. And another one by Vody Bauckham called Family Shepherds. These are three books. I recommend them to you. If you'd like to come afterwards and see what these books are, you're more than welcome Please do not take them. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Ephesians chapter 5. In order to understand male headship, it is critical for us to look at Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, in order to gain a better understanding of what it means to 
for a man to lead in his home. Ephesians chapter five. And we're going to read verses 22 through the rest of the chapter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved you. As Christ loved the church. I'm sorry. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes And cherishes it just as Christ does the church. But we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. You may be seated this evening. There is no duty, no responsibility in my life that is more important and more sacred than my role as a husband to my wife, Martina, and a father to my son, Nazareth. It is in the home where my true character, who I really am, is most accurately seen. And it is in the home where my overall success or my failure as a leader and role model is truly gauged in my home. You see me and who I am here, I pray, is who I am at home. But only my wife and son can tell you that. A man's leadership in his home is pivotal, not just for the church, but also for the state and society in general. The home is a place where future leaders of the state and the community are forged. They are raised. They are built up in the home. As a matter of fact, one of the examinations that Paul gives to potential elders who are married in First Timothy 3, 5 is the examination of their marriage. The examination of their marriage in order to do what? In order to determine whether or not they are fit for leadership in the church. For if a man cannot lead in his home, what business does he have leading in the church? The state has no jurisdiction over children informing them as future citizens. It's not the state's responsibility. It is the home's responsibility. It is the home that is charged with the responsibility and the duty to raise children who are leaders in society. 
It is in the home where we learn to follow. It's in the home where we learn to lead. All of these things are taught in the home. By God's design and by God's will, the husband is the head of the household. He is the leader of the family. He is the priest of the home who is charged with caring for, providing for, protecting and discipling his family. The husband is charged with that responsibility. The man is the head and leader of his home. He will e- he will either lead effectively or he will lead poorly. But either way, he will lead. He will lead effectively or he will lead poorly. But either way, he is leading. Um, as a matter of fact, a man failing to lead is a man who is leading in failure. A man who is failing to lead in his home is a man who is leading in failure. Leadership for a man is not optional. Again, it is the design and purpose of God. It is the design and purpose of God for man to lead. The headship is affirmed. The headship of man is affirmed from the beginning of time at creation. In Genesis, as Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 11, the man is the head of the woman. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. Paul upholds the concept of male headship in the family by appealing to the creative order of God. Man was created first, then woman. This is the creative order of God. There are always and always will be. There have been objections and there always will be objections to male headship from the culture at large. The feminist movement have great problems with this idea of male headship, this notion of male headship. A member of the United Nations Population Fund has referred to the breakdown of the American family, divorces, so on and so forth. They have referred to the breakdown of the American family as a triumph. Of patriarchy. A triumph over patriarchy. They argue that the breakdown of the family is a good thing because this person of the United Nations Population Fund believes that high divorce rates out of out of wedlock births are signals of triumph over male headship or patriarchy. This person believes that male headship in the home is oppressive. And we admit There have been great abuses of male headship in the home. That divorce, they say, out of wedlock births represent freedom from the oppressive teaching of biblical male headship. Andrea Dworkin of the radical feminist movement said, under patriarchy or male headship, no woman is safe to live her life or to mother her children. Under patriarchy, every woman is a victim, past, present, and future. Under patriarchy, every woman's son is her potential betrayer and also the inevitable rapist or exploiter of another woman. That is what the culture at large believes about male headship. Andrea Dorkin would rather just get rid of males altogether, it sounds like. The culture believes no man can lead you. You lead him. The culture believes they have no right to tell you to do anything. You tell them. We may say yes, but that is outside of the church, not inside of the church. Not so. You would be surprised 
at the objections in the evangelical churches as well toward male headship. Conservative evangelical churches also have arguments against male headship. Here are, are three of their main arguments. These are evangelical conservative churches, and these are their arguments concerning or against male headship. Number one, the culture. And these are in relationship to Ephesians 5.22 that we just read. The culture. They say this. The argument is that the admonition of Paul to male headship in Ephesians chapter 5 is merely a cultural statement. Meaning, that's the way things were at that time. The time that Paul wrote that, but we have evolved today. We don't live in that world any longer, therefore those teachings don't apply to us anymore. That's one of their teachings. There's a problem with that statement. And here's the problem. Here's one of the problems with that statement. Ephesians 5 is not the only place where male headship is taught. Ephesians 5 is not the only place where male headship is taught. The Bible teaches male headship in the home in a number of different places. Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, Titus 2 and 5. In each of these passages, male headship is clearly taught. In those passages, the teachings also is that wives are to submit to their husbands is also clearly taught. But we find the foundation of male headship in the home, in the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis. And it is consistently taught throughout the rest of the Bible. What Paul teaches is not cultural. The way in which God has set up the structure of the family is consistent all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. As was previously stated in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul roots... The foundations of male headship as being a part of the creative order in Genesis. This is the way God has created us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 again, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. And Christ is the head of God. Or, and the head of Christ is God. It's not cultural. Secondly, their argument is this. The argument is, it's a part of the curse. Male headship is a part of the curse. Another argument is this. The reason why we have male male headship is because Adam and Eve fell and God cursed Adam and Eve. Therefore, women are cursed under male headship. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, we'll be going back and forth from Genesis to Ephesians. (coughs) Bless you. Ephesians 3, 16. Your desire, God speaking to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The argument is this, that God has cursed Eve because of the fall and that he, she is cursed to be what? That she is cursed to be ruled. The reason why there is male headship because God cursed Eve To be ruled. That the curse of God is that Eve would be dominated and want to be dominated, but also fight against the domination by her husband. And that Adam would submit to that domination. The argument is male headship is not a part of the creative order. It's not the way God made us. It's rather a product of the fall. It's a product of sin. But there's a few problems with this as well. If male headship was a product of the fall, then why do we find affirmation of male headship in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 
Titus 2. And isn't it interesting that Paul is speaking to people in those places who are in Christ, who have been removed from the curse. You following me? Paul is speaking to people who are in Christ, who have been removed from the curse. Now, if male headship was a product of the fall and the curse was male headship, then it would be removed from us as we are in Christ. Because it's part of the curse, is it not? If that's the argument, if the argument is male headship is a part of the curse, Paul is saying we've been redeemed from this curse, then why haven't women been redeemed from male headship? If that's the argument. If we use that argument that male headship was a part of the curse and that women have been redeemed from it, then we've also got to ask, what about the other curse? Were they also redeemed from that curse? What curse are you talking about? Genesis 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain. In childbearing, in pain, you shall bear, bring forth children. If we argue that male headship is a product of the curse that we've been redeemed from, that we should no longer be under, then that also means that pain in childbirth should also be a a product of the curse that you are also redeemed from. So that when you go to hospitals and you're walking down those pregnancy or those delivery rooms, there should be rooms of saved people, saved women, who are absolutely silent as they're giving birth and rooms of unsaved women who are screaming their heads off because they're still under a curse. If that's the argument that we follow concerning being redeemed or removed or a curse being removed from us or it being a part of the curse. Does that make sense? Not so. Not so. All those who are believing wives who have had children, I think you can say not so. The reality is that we see male headship structured by God even before the curse. Genesis chapter 2. We see male headship established by God before the fall. We see male headship after the fall. Where do we see it in Genesis chapter 2? Well, the woman was made after the man. Male headship. The woman was made for the man. Male headship. The woman was made... From the man, male headship, the woman was brought to the man, male headship, and the woman was named by the man, male headship. All of these are establishing male headship. Someone may say, well, I don't see the word there. If you take that kind of argument throughout the rest of Scripture, when you're reading, you're going to have a really tough time reading the rest of the Bible. I don't see the word. I don't see the word. You see the concept, though. You see the concept. And if you miss concepts because you need words, then you might as well throw out a lot of the major doctrines of Christianity, especially things like the Trinity, hypostatic union. A lot. Genesis 317, when God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed. Adam, I charged you with the responsibility to lead and you were to follow me, God, and his leading. But you, Adam, instead of following God and instead of you leading your wife, you allowed her to lead. Therefore, you are cursed. You let that unclean serpent into this garden, into this temple. You stood by as your wife of whom you are responsible for was deceived by this unclean serpent. And you, Adam, partook 
when she gave it to you, when I distinctly told you, do not eat of that tree. You yielded leadership to her when you were to be the one leading. Therefore, you are cursed. You listened to your wife when you should have listened to me, God says, essentially. In Romans 5.12, what does Paul say? Paul interprets what happens. Paul interprets for us what happens at that moment. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one couple. Is that what the Bible says? Is that what the Bible says? Just therefore, just as sin came into the world through one couple. Not what it says. Not what it says. And mind you, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is the divine, infallible interpreter of all scripture, tells you what Moses, who was also inspired by the Holy Spirit, did not tell you was in Genesis, which is this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Male headship. One man, male headship. Was Eve a part of it? Yes, but Eve was not charged with responsibility. Adam was. Adam, therefore, is responsible for the sin of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is not referred to as the last Adam and Eve, is he? He's referred to as the last Adam. Why male headship? Why male headship? That, that's just one of the implications of that. Not all of them, but at least just one male headship. So then we must ask, what is happening with the curse of God in Eve being ruled? And what, what is that about? What is it about that Eve is cursed to be ruled? You must understand that the curse, the curse is not male headship. That's not the curse. The curse is the woman's rebellion to male headship. That's the curse. Is her rebellion to the leadership of man. That is the curse. The curse is of the woman. It is her desire to usurp, to undermine, and even to attempt to overthrow the authority of male headship. That is her curse. Therefore, there will be conflict between man and woman in their marriages. She will fight to rule. She will fight to rip authority out of his hands. And the two of them will wrestle for authority. You've experienced that in your own marriages. All of us have. Why? It's a part of the curse. One has been ordained with authority by the order and purpose of God. And the other will, because of the curse, want that authority. But the creative order will not be overturned. God has established male headship. And the Bible says, and he shall rule over you. For those women who say, well, I'm the boss. I'm the boss in my home, not him. You're displaying evidences of the curse. I run the house, not him. You are in rebellion. And you are out of line with the creative order. And man, male, if you say, yes, she is, then you're out of line. Then you're out of line. She's the boss. I don't I don't know. She talked to her. She's the boss. Then you're out of line. And that's what's happened too much is we've the men have have yielded over authority and said, you take it. I don't want it. And then when it's time to take to make to make an account for what you've done, she did it. It was her fault. I've got no say in it. She's the boss. Wrong. You are. At least you've been placed in responsibility. If you feel your heart racing right now, women. 
or even boiling. Evidences of the curse. But he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to lead. We'll get to those things. And I hear you. We'll get to those things. First and foremost, understand this is what God has established. This is what God has ordained. Male headship is not invented in Genesis 3, but it is reinforced in Genesis 3 and throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, there's another argument. Confusion. The confusion. There's confusion. What confusion? Well, the confusion about about Ephesians 5.22. We're all so confused about 5.22. We know about wives submitting to their husbands, but we have failed to read verse 21. We know about verse 22 and on and on and on, but we always skip verse 21, don't we? And that's why verse 22 is so clearly misunderstood. What is verse 21? Ephesians 5:21. Go there, please. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oh, that clears it all up. Clears what up? The verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. We've missed 21. What Paul meant was that we're supposed to submit to one another. (laughs) Silly men. Silly pastor men. Right. Not that I'm supposed to submit to him alone, but he is also supposed to submit to me. We submit to one another. Now it all makes sense. Kumbaya, my Lord. Right? Why don't people read 21? It would clear up so many different things. The argument is that we have mistaken what Paul has said. Because we have not paid close enough attention to verse 21. Brothers and sisters, not so. Not so. So we're going to get technical for just a moment. The verb that is used in verse 22 is the same verb that is transferred over from verse 21 or used again in verse 21. And that is a, a Greek word called hupatasso, uh, hupatasio, right? And it, it is this. It's simply this. Don't worry about the Greek word. Worry about the meaning, which is this. It's a military term that refers to voluntary submission from an inferior, inferior officer to a superior officer. It's speaking about rank. It's speaking about order. That's what that verse means. It means that you submit to someone because of their rank and because of their office. Remember, those who have been placed in certain positions have been placed there by who? By God. Those who are in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Therefore, when you submit to those who are in authority, you are submitting not only to them, but you are submitting also to God. Because this is the way God has established whatever that authority is. The problem with this argument of mutual submission is it doesn't make any sense. Mutual submission does not make any sense. And the term does not allow for mutual submission. Now, this does not mean that women are not equal in the sense that we were both created by God. But we have both been given different roles by God. Different responsibilities by God. And both are crucial and both are important. But they are different. 
And for one to act like the other does not exist is to completely ignore the clear teaching of Scripture. The second problem is this. The idea of mutual submission is not consistent with what the Bible teaches. Ephesians 5.21 does not does not exist in Colossians 3 or 1 Peter 3 or Titus 2. So what does that mean? It means in other passages where male headship is clearly taught would contradict the idea of mutual submission. Why would Paul say mutually submit here and then not say mutually submit everywhere else? Because that's not what Paul is saying. This does not mean that you take verse 21 and apply it to all those other texts. It does not work. Here's here's the other issue and the main issue. The context. The context of this passage. Verse 21. What does verse 21 in your Bible? Does it look to be the end of a paragraph? Yeah. You never go to the end of the paragraph to make sense of something. You always go to the beginning. Not only to the beginning of the paragraph, I would suggest that you go to the beginning of the chapter. And if you're wise, some of you may even want to go to the beginning of the book. Only six chapters. So in order to understand verse 21, you've got to read the rest of the chapter. Because first and foremost, you have to understand that in this paragraph or in this chapter, up to verse 21, he's not speaking to wives and husbands. Up to verse 21, he's speaking to fellow believers. Believers one to another. Verse 22 has nothing to do necessarily with 1 through 21. Verse 22 is a completely different, not different, but it's a different context. Are we all, are we all understanding what I'm saying here? Yes? Okay. When we go to this chapter, and especially to that paragraph, and that paragraph, it, that paragraph is 15. Let's go to verse 15. Ephesians 5.15. Are you there? Paul speaking to believers. Look Carefully, then, how you walk. Who's he speaking to? Believers. Not speaking to married couples. Speaking to believers. Not as why unwise, but wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Who's he speaking to? The church. He's speaking to the church. And you'll find that if you read verse one of the fifth chapter going on, verse 20, giving thanks always and in everything to God, the father in the name of the of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's speaking about the way that we behave in the local church. That's one context, the way that we behave in the local church. Now, in this paragraph, we have three contrasts. The three contrasts come with three commands. And in those three commands, we also get three different contexts afterwards. I would encourage you, again, read the beginning. So here's the contrast, verse 15. Not unwise, but wise. That's how we should live. Not unwise, but wise. Verse 17. Not foolish, but understanding the will of the Lord. Here's another contrast. Verse 18. Do not be drunk, but filled with the spirit. Speaking to believers. Those are three different contrasts. Not like the world, but this is how we live in the spirit. On these three contrasts, we have three commands. What are they? Verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms 
and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Verse 20. Giving thanks always. Give thanks for everything to God. The Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's your third command. In the church, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Are we together? Paul has established that this is the way that we are to communicate with one another, to live with one another in the local church. But even in that, God has established in the church, in the church. So does that mean that there's no submitting to the leaders? No, because in Hebrews, which I believe Paul is the writer of Hebrews, Paul says, submit to your leaders. There's an office there. And as we work together, as we talked about in our last series in congregationalism, as we work together for the furthering of the gospel, for the protecting of the gospel and for the raising up of God's people. Paul continues to show us how we are to live in three different contexts now. Here's three different contexts and how we're supposed to live. Verses 522 to 6-1, we live, this is how we live wives to husbands. So he's told us how we live as a church. Now here's, here's how we live wives to husband. Wives submit to your husbands. Husband loves your, husbands love your wives. That's how we're to live. Husbands lay down your life for your wives. Wives respect your husbands. That's how we're to live in the home. How else are we to live? Uh, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents. Submit to your parents. Why? Here's the command to you, young people. Here's the command to you if you submit to your... Here's the promise to you if you, if you obey the command of God. You will have a long life. Submit to your parents. The, this is the first promise or first command with a promise that you may live long. How could I live long if I obey my parents? Because they, they probably won't kill you if you don't... Right? That's probably what it means. There's another context. Slaves to masters. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Or in our world, it would be employers to employees. Or employees to employers. Submit to your employers. In all of those relationships, there is no mutual submission there. There is there's an order and you submit to it. And if you do this, God is glorified. Because... This is how God has ordained it. The parent relationship to the child is not mutual. I'm not my son. I'm not submitting to my son. He submits to me. My son's not. My wife is not submitting to her, to our son. He submits to her. Amen. It doesn't work that way when you go to work either. For this mutual submission idea, you don't go to the job and your 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 job your your employer says, "Hey, can you go pick that stuff up over, over there?" And you go, "Hey, yeah." And you know what? And when I'm done with that, why don't you go pick up that? Since we're we've got this whole mutual <laughs> submission thing going on here, it don't work that way. You would be fired. I thought we were on an even playing field. No, we're not. It doesn't work that way. Submission works in one direction. There was a person who was called to lead and there was a person who was called to submit. Therefore, the idea of mutual submission is an unacceptable explanation for the rest of that text. Verse 22 and on. Now, does this mean that women do not have any input, that they should be silent? Not at all. And we're going to talk about this more next week. But I'll tell you this. If there is a decision to be made in our family, 
There is no person that I would rather go to than the person who is closest to me. And that is my beautiful wife. She is both a helper to me. And there has been more than one occasion that I can think of that she's been my greatest counselor. That she's given me advice. And sometimes when I didn't ask for it and when I didn't want to hear it. And I come back and she was absolutely right. If we are not in agreement about a situation, then we'll wait. I'm not going to just go ahead and do it because I'm the boss and me, Tarzan, you, Jane. I'm going to wait. Because she is called to be a helper to me. And I would be forfeiting the order of God. And the, the purpose for what she has been created for me in my life. To help. To give wisdom. To give counsel. Now, if there is something that, that we can't agree on, then we'll wait. And Lord willing, we will pray. But if there's a decision that has to be made, then listen, then I'll make that decision. And guess what? The results will ultimately fall on my head. Because I've been entrusted with that responsibility. I've been entrusted with it. Just as Adam was responsible for Eve. Now, that should make wives pray for their husbands. That should make wives fall on their face before God for their husbands as they lead. Because we will fail. I failed so many times. I've made decisions where we've done something as a family where I wish ah, I wish we would have done it the other way. Even now, as we're preparing for to buy a home, as preparing to buy a car, thinking I should have been wiser earlier. My wife's been telling me for the past five years that we've been married. Save, save, save. And I'm buying, buying, spending. Only now am I beginning to listen to my wife. But you know what? All this time, it falls on my head, not hers. And the wives, you don't gloat when you're right. I told you so. You don't go to your Facebook or to your best friends. He is such an idiot. Never. You won't hear my wife talking bad about me. Ever. Because she respects her husband, loves me and understands I've got a responsibility to lead the family. And that does not help anything talking about him. He's doing the best he can. Does he fail? All the time. But I don't take it to you. I take it to God. I love her for that. I love that I know she can go hang out with her friends and they ain't gossiping about me. She won't allow it. Amazing woman of God that I have. We are called to lead in our households. We'll talk about this more next week, but... A man's leadership in his household goes to all the affairs in his house. He is to be the priest, head, and leader of his home. But unfortunately, that's where many of us stop as husbands. I'm the leader. I'm the head of his household. Okay. You're the head of the household. Are you also the head of training and discipling your children and your wife? I lead this whole household. Okay, are you leading your wife? Are you leading your children in the ways of the Lord? We cannot pass the responsibility to disciple our wives or our children over to someone else to do our job for us. It's our job. We want to pound our chest and claim to be men of the house. But you are also chief as the principal discipler of your wife and your children. Who trains your children to know and love the Lord? Who trains them? Have you laid a map 
a roadmap for your kids to believe and to be transformed by the gospel? Or are you leaving that ministry up to another children's minister or youth minister? Not their job. Your job. My wife, Bobby, Rosita, and all the others who have been helping your kids, they will not stand before the Lord and give account for your children. You will stand before the Lord and give an account for your children. We let them go to class and say, well, they're good. We don't even ask them what they learned. We have no gospel, spiritual conversations with them throughout the week because we feel like it's being taken care of by another. Wrong. Unbiblical. Not their job. We'll be talking more about this soon. There was a preacher that I sat under growing up, unfortunately, but God ordained it. Who used to say, you take care of God's house and God will take care of your house. Not so. You take your care of your house. And you also take care of God's house. But you take care of your house first. His son became wayward, more wayward than the, some of the worst of sinners. How? Because that same preacher and others like him would spend more time on the road preaching to complete strangers than opening the Bible with his own son, his own children and his own wife. Discipling them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So that we have these pastors, kids who grew up in pastors homes, but were never discipled by them. What a shame. You were, your dad was a pastor. My dad never opened up the Bible for me once, they might say. Spent so much time on the road. Spent so much time preaching to other people. Never once did he spend five minutes explaining to me the gospel. Scary. And sin. And sin. My first calling, my first calling is to my wife, Martina, and to my son, Nazareth. My mother and my father have done their job with me. Their job is done. Now it is my responsibility to move forward and repeat that discipleship and to do better. I want Nazareth, my wife and I want Nazareth to do better than we did. We must go and make disciples. Of all nations. But how dare us take one foot outside of our doors to make disciples of all nations without first shutting the door behind us or shutting us inside of our homes and making disciples of our own family. How dare us take one foot out there without taking one step inside of our home to make disciples. Does this mean, again, that mothers play no role? Not at all. Just as it is not meant that women have no role in any of the other aspects of family life. It is a responsibility, though, to men to exercise headship and leadership when it comes to the family. Men. You are responsible to set one of uh, John Piper's favorite words. You are responsible to set the trajectory of your family. The way in which your family goes is up to you and how you lead. You will stand before God and give an account for your family.
And it's not achieved through domination. It requires submission. Submission to God. It requires us being servant leaders. Not these dominating men who stomp our feet around. It requires us being submissive to God and being servant leaders to our family. And our wives, who do they submit to? Perfect men? Not at all. Flawed men. Sinful men. But men who are leading as servants and trying with all of our heart to love God and to love them. The kind of man, that kind of man, a woman would gladly submit to. Ephesians 5.22, women submit to your wife or wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also women wives should submit to everything, submit, should submit to everything to their husbands. Can I say to you as we close, this is not something that is forced on a woman. I had a relative who, and this was when I was early 20s, who said, as he's dating this girl, I like her, but man, she doesn't submit to me. They were dating. And even as a young 20 year old, I said, she doesn't have to submit to you. You're not her husband. But how am I going to know that she can submit to me if she doesn't start submitting now? (laughs) Here's how you know. Watch how she submits to her father. If you want to know, men, what kind of woman you'll be married to, then watch the woman with her father. Watch how she serves him, submits to him. That's one of the ways that I knew that my wife was going to be an amazing wife. Because of how she submitted to her father. And it it, it wasn't just because she was absolutely deathly scared of her father. Though that might be some of the reasons. But in watching her, even when we were not around, there were things that she would not do. Because she was submitted to her father. He wouldn't stay out past nine. We had to be home by nine. There were... uh, Maybe restaurants that she would say, I, my dad doesn't like that place. We're not going there. I, I just knew she's going to be an amazing woman. I'm just making up stuff on that part because I, I can't remember. But I knew that she was going to be a submissive wife and a great wife. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, we'll close with this. Children are commanded to submit to their parents. Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves to their masters. What is the... What is the The summation of all this. Why do all these things? And we'll close with this. Because it brings glory to God. Because this is the way that God has established it. And it brings glory to God. Next week we'll talk about men being servant leaders in their home. Yes men you're getting two two Wednesdays. The next week we'll talk about women. And uh, biblical womanhood. And then we'll finally, in the last two weeks, talk about what it means to disciple our families and how to do so. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, thank you for this time. We pray that you were glorified and that your people were edified and strengthened. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.